This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hello. Hi. Hi, Nubians. Hi. How, how are you? How's everyone? Hey, problem. <laughs> Good morning. Hey, Dr. Carr. I love those. I love the colors on your hair wrap. Yeah, I just I just threw this on. You know, I've been it's been a busy morning, so I'm just like, let me just throw this on. I that's how black women do it. That's how black women do it. I was watching uh, our sister Tanji Brown Jackson yesterday in the White House uh, garden, and you know, I never ask anybody for anything in those valences. This was one time I said, you know what? I might pick up the phone, ask somebody, uh, get me in there, and then I thought, no, I'm good. But looking at all those sisters in that garden, just remind you. Uh, the black woman is God. <laughs> I mean, it's so beautiful to see those sisters sitting around there. And then the two came out, uh, you know, in the ancient Egyptian statuary, you usually see Wasir, the dude in the middle. And sometimes you will see um, either Hetheru or, well, it's not Hetheru, it's really Asar. I mean, uh, uh, Isis, Aset, but she'll have a Hetheru crown on her head sometimes. You see the horns and then the solar disc. And sometimes on the left, you might see her sister, Nebet or Neptis. And so that's a very familiar uh pose in Africana statuary. In fact, the Met now, because they had to catch up, they got a lot of the African stuff in the Met and they've got all in one place. And they're showing how this echo of Africa beginning in the Nile Valley echoes throughout the the world. And so all you people who say, you hoteps, well then go call the Met a hotep too, because they've done, now they finally realized that we ain't paying attention to white people. So now they got to, anyway, I started to say that Joe Biden was miscast yesterday because in those African statuaries, you never have a, a white man in the middle of those two black women because those women on the sides are not on the sides. That's really the position behind is the position of intercession and protection. It's like you never put a child in back of you. You put a child in front of you so you can see what's coming and protect. You often see the hand up like that as well. So when Joe Biden came walking out of there with Katanji on one side and Kamala on the other side, I'm just looking at that through that Africana lens like, dude, you ain't even the one in charge. But you can't see it. Not not yet. But it's OK. <laughs> but anyway, it was just very interesting, beautiful to see. So I see that wrap on your head. Another reminder that, in fact, we would just lead us to black women. Thomas Sankara said that, by the way, too, in Burkina Faso. You leave it to black women, then we could get out of this mess. But, you know, they're not going to get that memo till it's too late. Shout out to Chinless Tom Cotton and all the rest of you uh, shrunken manhood white boys that think somehow that yelling at that sister was somehow going to improve your status. You're going away soon. And Randy Paul, little Randy, who tried to wait, you know what I'm saying, come in there and try to slow up the vote. You little, you little terrier. That's why that, uh, that's why that, uh, your white neighbor gave you them hands. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the most curious story that we don't have any, uh, any solution to like, what happened? Why, why'd you get your ass whooped by your neighbor? What happened? On your property. On your property. What happened? Yeah, Chris Brock ain't the only irritating cat to get slapped. I mean, anyway, Randy Paul. Mm -hmm is uh is an example of one of them cats that you know see some some people who let me let me say less because i'll start talking violently and uh will smith uh gave up his membership they banned him for 10 years uh shout out to louis ck still piling up the statuary you know boy one of these days y'all gonna find out what neely foot said if you understand the white supremacy everything else you think you understand will only confuse you you think he's gonna be okay will smith Ooh. I mean, he's okay he, right now, right? If he's not okay, then then his whole sum total of his life is dependent upon other people's opinion and the white gaze. So, so if he's that person, then he won't be okay. If he cares about what people, if he's if he's living his life on the outside in instead of the inside out, then he won't be okay because then that will matter, right? But it shouldn't matter 
you know, um, and I've said this before, I'm planning on getting an EGOT and all of the things, but not because of any other reason other than they're there to get. And, you know, I'm going to get whatever it is that I want because that's how I move it. But, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, but if, if I don't get it, it doesn't invalidate my entire existence. And no question. Ever. Like, I'm good. No question. But, yeah, I think he should be good. He should be good. And, um, and those, like you said, those little statues aren't evidence of anything at this point except the places that give them trying to maintain their status. Relevance, yeah. So, you know, shout out to the Baylor's. You know what I'm saying? For another Grammy nominated, was that the fourth? I think they got the better yeah, project. Yeah. They looked, that, yeah, Gene and, and Mark, they looked up no. amazing. On Didn't the, they? <laughs> yes. Kudos. No question. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, yesterday, was that a, a victory? Because, I, you know, the first day I was like, I put it right. And I so I had to, had to reframe because initially I was like, is this Juneteenth? And the anti-lynching law is this in the annals of history? Been 115 justices, mm-hmm. first, uh, second woman with melanin with African ancestry to sit on the Supreme Court. She's the second one behind Soda Sotomayor, mm-hmm. uh, four fifth women woman, right? Um, okay. But out of 115, there've been 110 white men, right? I think yeah, that's, yeah. I don't even know if we should. I say we again. Who is we? We'll talk about that in a minute. But should we count? anybody before 1865 i mean it was like by law you negroes couldn't be i'm just saying because that's why it's always imagined me and shout out again to cory booker brother i wish we lived in the country that you seem to believe we're going to live in one day but uh everybody talking about we you know since the beginning negro you know you came here with your shirt off speaking another language when you say we you, you wait you're not starting in 1780 seven are you no i'm starting 1619 okay you're not starting in 1619 are you no i'm starting 1524 wait you're not oh i see you keep pegging those numbers to the harm boy you negroes amaze me so no i would i'm just as they were doing the numbers it's 115 i'm thinking 115 okay you got to count off everybody count out everybody from john marshall up to 1865 maybe you can start the clock then it might make you look better i'm saying them white nationalists might even like to shrink that number at that point but it's with some free Negroes around. Mm-mm. If we lived in a country rather than a settler state, then a country meaning a place where everybody was kind of living together and working to improve, Polly Murray would have been on the Supreme Court. Spotswood Robinson would have been on the Supreme Court. Constance Baker Motley wouldn't have been stuck as a federal judge. You know, Johnson, as we talked about last week, really wanted to advance her to the Court of Appeals. But then some things got in the way. He didn't have the numbers in, in, the, in the Senate. And then a little thing with a V, Vietnam. And then he didn't run for a second term. If Johnson had run and been reelected, who knows? Maybe Constance Baker Motley would have made it to the Supreme Court because he definitely had the combination of commitment and political savvy and anger and resentment against the kind of quote unquote elite class, including Robert Kennedy, who did not support Constance Baker Motley, was still mad at her because of her political positions in New York. If Johnson had got another term, we might have been, we may be calling Katanji Brown Jackson number three. Well, uh, for the American Negroes, they would say number two because they wouldn't count Sotomayor. But uh, anyway, so but it didn't happen. You know, so, you know, where do we put this in the animals? I mean, it's historic. So I, you know, I was going to, yesterday on my show, it's Foolishness Friday, and I was going to do some foolishness and do my the chronicles and have Tim Scott and, and just, you know, make him the winch. And, you know, I was like, <laughs> I out, and I was like, 
just sit. Let's just sit in this for a minute. Let's and sit. Absorb what it means and what you know when she stood up on that podium at that podium and talked about representation and talking about all of the little girls and boys in this country who see her as a role model when she talked when she quoted that Maya Angelou uh poem uh you know the hopes and the dreams of the slave and uh, she you know I know yeah. I know I know I know that just bothers me I mean because people okay. love Margarita Johnson who then self-named herself Maya Angelou just had a birthday last week right? just had a birthday no question no question who who went to live in Africa, who knew Malcolm X. In fact, her roommate, as we talked about a few weeks ago, Alice Wyndham, uh, just made transition. Uh, you know, she's much more complicated. And, you know, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the hope and the dream of the slave. No, you are not the hope and dream of the slave. Uh, not if uh, you got white people quoting you to say, no, the hope and the dream of the slave is freedom, liberation, for them, first generations return, which is why we're reading Barracoon. Shout out to Nubia. I hope y'all are already beginning to get y'all's books from Black Books. There it is right there. There it is right there. I cannot wait. And Katanji Brown-Jackson is an unknown. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yes. Tony Morrison. Oh, I love one of the greatest writers of our time. No question. And that's Zora looking fly. And that, of course, was an assignment. She was sent to Alabama by Carter G. Woodson and Franz Boas, and Woodson was picking up the tab. I mean, so it all comes together. But that was a win yesterday. It isn't an unqualified win. It is a win for that injection of uh, a kind of nominal inspiration for some of us, but, but I'm not a child. So looking back in the eyes of a child who grew up in the South, who every time Louisiana's by the blue took the pitcher's mound, or uh, Omaha, Nebraska's Bob Gibson took the pitcher's mound. Even as a little black boy, I was like, strike all of those white men out. <laughs> I mean, so I, I can know what I'm, I, I, can, I know that I cannot know what that what that image meant to a little black girl and a little black boy who will not know a time when that is not normal. That you can't really you can't overestimate. I don't know, Prof. Growing up. Who are those black people that you saw in the public eye that your father and mother, my mother and father would have seen as, oh my God. But as a child, you didn't know any different until you got older and recognized, oh, that was, a, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking Thurgood Marshall, definitely. Oh yeah. Um, But there was mostly entertainers. It was, you know, Sidney Poitier, it was Diane Carroll, it was, you know, it was mostly entertainers. Uh, my next door neighbor had Martin Luther King on their wall with Jesus and always. Yeah. My next door neighbor, we didn't have that though. We didn't have. Got to have it. We didn't have <laughs> the Holy Trinity of whatever that is. I don't Abraham, know. Abraham, Martin, and John. Yeah, the, uh, the plates. <laughs> Black people putting plates on the wall. <laughs> you supposed to eat off that? I would never eat off this Martin Luther yeah. King plate. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um. I mean, but you raise a great question. Is one that I'm constantly like. What does it mean? You know, is is it pure? I mean, Obama definitely for a lot of people, you know, there's, there's a whole generation of young people who did not, who grew up not knowing anything but a black president. And then we got Trump. So how do you explain that to those kids? How do you, you explain know. that? You know, like, yeah. I just, you know, I'm just like, we're looking for freedom. <laughs> is this freedom? No. Is this freedom? Does this change the dynamics in this country? Uh, those 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 senators that got up and stormed out in a huff 
that, was, that was really weird. I you love know, it. I, I love like, it. You know, but but there's like two things going on at the same time in this country, and we're uh, we're I don't think we're paying attention to all of it. Oh, we're not paying attention to any of it. Many things going on. We're not paying attention to any of it. I I I dare say that there are many indigenous folk, First Nations fam, Native Americans as they were called now, Americans, ironically, as they were called when the white people first came here because they were not Americans and gave them that label. There are many who don't know that there is a case now, Deb Holland, of course, is Secretary of the Interior, and uh, the case has been appealed and the Supreme Court is going to hear it. So while we're talking about Katanji Jackson, there are Native Americans in this country who don't know that they're getting ready to, to blow out the back end of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Because, you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which they've been after for years, the last major case before this case they're about to hear on appeal was adoptive couple couple versus baby girl. It's a it's a case I cover in, in my class at, at Howard Law where John Roberts is asking about blood quantum and how much blood makes you a Native American. It was an adoption case out of South Carolina where a man of indigenous descent uh, had a baby with the woman and they split and he gave up his parental rights in the split and the mother subsequently put the baby up for adoption. Well, when the father found out, he wanted to assert his rights because he said, no, I didn't give up my rights, but you turn around and put the baby up for adoption. And because he was part Native American, he invoked the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was passed in 1978 was when that statute was passed, federal statute, which has in it a stipulation that when babies uh, who are Native American, part Native American or fully Native American, are put up for adoption, the first option should be to seek Native American families to preserve, you know, the cultural heritage. Well, you know, the white boys have been after that since the legislation passed, the white nationalists. And so uh, during the oral arguments in adoptive couple versus baby girl, the, um, you know, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, well, how much blood makes you Native American? How much is, it's an important question. It's a question if they get their California reparations legislation, they're going to be asking as we raised last week, as you said, when white people start showing up with better records than the Negroes who realize they can't trace their ancestors all the way back. And then white people start saying, I get reparations because I got some enslaved people in my family. <laughs> Ooh, but this new case, they've got the numbers now in the Supreme Court to eviscerate the Indian Child Welfare Act under the idea of, con con of colorblind constitutionalism. In other words, if race is evoked, then we will be able to apply strict scrutiny. And that's part of the, 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 the prong, the two prong test. Strict scrutiny means, you know, is there a compelling state interest in having Native American babies go with Native American families as the first option? Not the exclusive option, the first option. And if you can su survive that, then the second prong ticks in. Well, is the uh, is the statute narrowly tailored enough? Is there an alternative to this uh, way that it is worded and phrased to accomplish that uh, compelling state interest? And what you see is they've got the numbers to just say no consistently. That's how they're going to knock the teeth out of uh, the Voting Rights Act. But come on back, Prof. Because I, I, I think we have to add, when you ask, is um, was this a victory? I think absolutely. But the victory is beyond the law we'll talk about the law for a few minutes this morning but uh you know the victory is in the the optics the victory is in the unintended uh, un unintended consequences what paulo Freire and them will call the surplus value 
Fredo would talk about this, the surplus value of knowledge. Like you, you, you send people to school and you have one idea in your mind of what they're going to do with that education. They come there with different ideas. And then you look up and they use that same law book that you wanted them to come be a good Negro to hit you over the head. And you're like, well, Fred says, see, that's the surplus value. of now. So we really don't know what the unintended consequences of Katanji Brown Jackson sitting in their court are. Nobody, anybody says they know is lying or trying to impress white people so they can get another commentator gig. But you don't know. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know I should say less. Now, can we? Uh, and, and I wanted to. Um, Roland Roland tweeted um, something. I think this week, uh, eight years ago, what have you, was the last time. I think it was 2013. He, he tweeted was the last time he he was on cable news. Oh, oh and, yeah, was that the CNN. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, and, and as he was, you know, talking about all of the things he has done since then in this self determining building your own platform way and as we sit here right now with nearly a thousand people and more coming in to what's Nubians. up Nubians from all over the world yeah um yeah, Jack is in from from South Africa and other in parts Jack of oh Nubia see that yeah. Africa that's the, that's that's what we talking about yeah. oh yeah well, don't get mad look at that Nubia look we got in black and white white and black we don't play yes uh <laughs> you know I was thinking about the the future you know like if we can remove the the lens or the gaze or the the you know, you, you start off talking about Will Smith. If we can remove the desire, it's almost like getting off of sugar. Yes. <laughs> it's getting off of a drug. It's almost mm. like we need to go into rehab or detox from the desire to be validated by a system that denigrated and stripped us of everything. Yes. Yet we want them to please just see us. Please respect us. Please, 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 please let me in. Instead of like doing what Roland did, doing doing what we are doing, doing what so many of us are, you know, waking up every day while we sit in maybe a corporate office, but we're building simultaneously because that's got to be the thing. Yes. Be in their house, but make sure, you know, you are building simultaneously the thing that we have to build to make us all free. We have to do that. We got to take that money to wealth of the wicked stored up on the right. Take that money. And build your make sure your neighborhood's tight, your house is tight. But no longer should we have to, you know, you know, and we need people in these places, right? We need politicians. We just we got a cavalier uh who's now mayor of what is it, Milwaukee? First time. Cavalier. It's an amazing name. We got, you know, all kinds of, you know, Gary Chambers running for the Senate. We we need the Corey Bushes and the people who are. No regular question. folk in Congress and in the in the White House and in all levers of quote unquote power here, but with that eye on freeing all of us, like don't be there to be accepted and be happy just to be in the room and you know check that box of the first. It's not gonna happen. No, I mean I think that no, 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 that's the tough one because once you're in there, as we know, as we say, individuals don't be institutions and. I say Roland has been busting his ass for years and then, you know, first the TV one and now the independent platform and you've been busting your ass for years in the whole formations. And unlike Roland, you still walk substantially in those worlds in ways that continue to create those spaces, whereas, you know, Roland is completely off that thing. Now, the irony is it's not ironic at all to what you're observing somehow however not not somehow let me take out the mystery because it's no mystery at all because you stand with your feet firmly planted in community 
your language, your outlook, your analysis doesn't change depending on where you are. And so we both know, you know more of them than I do. Friends, acquaintances, comrades, whose language changes. These are the... No, um, so they, they do these um, passion studies and things at, at, at SiriusXM. And, you know, I came in there intentionally to see, you know, it's almost like a um, case study. <laughs> yes. Let <laughs> me be the blackest I can ever think to be my whole entire self, unapologetic every single day. And let's see what happens. That was my seven years ago. I just had this challenge for myself. Let me see what would happen in a space that nobody cared about. Right. So let me just be clear. Nobody cared about this space. They had one show that they cared about and they didn't care about anything else. They had no money for it. They didn't care about it, which was perfect for me because what I saw was uh, somebody would see as, you know, eh, uh, uh, I saw it as a gold mine because there's so many people out there that don't have a home, don't have a place to feel safe, don't have a place to have. So they just told me last your show is like the number one passion, blah, blah, blah. Ah! You've got more listeners you've ever had before, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I'm not surprised because, you know, these folk are, this is the world we live in. And because so many of us have had the coast, which they don't know us. Right. But we know us. We know us. If we don't know us. Two months ago, you don't know us, Negroes. What does Zora say? (laughs) You don't know us. But if we continue to double down on us and we continue to feed and, and seed and serve us and tap us on the shoulder to be us in all of these spaces and stop with the with the acceptance thing, you know, I, I just think it, it would have to change because just like you, you think about the, the Forbes list, most of those companies are fed by our dollars. Oh, of course. So that means that they don't have a company without us. Even I mean, even TikTok. There's no TikTok without Black people. There's no Twitter without Black people. Oh. There's no, you know, like none of these clothing. Co- like we. Yeah, that's not what you said. One, that's not what you said about Elon Musk too. Yes. So so I'm just like okay. okay once let's... it gets going, now let me let's get in here and rein it in now, <laughs> or at least let's manage it because you're right. We are the engine. What would happen if we walked away? You know what would happen? Well, I mean, they have stopped that again. That's why. What you say, what you're observing, I mean, if you are a politician, you are by definition compromised Mm. in this polity. And that's not a criticism. It's an observation. So, you know, like I said, we both know politicians, folks who are in, quote unquote, those social structure rooms who, when they are in governance spaces, talk very differently. It's it's almost funny to me when I see those folk that I know in those spaces, when I encounter them, it's like almost immediately after a very warm greeting and then there comes an explanation. Yeah, I know. I know you was trying to think, what is, what am I trying to do? It's cool, man. Don't listen. I understand. I really understand. And you need to know, I understand. But, but, but I think the, the other side of that is our people have to understand that politicians are not your friends. And that they are not going to come into a space and be black as hell. And that the more of us engage in that space, the more those who do have that predisposition can do and say, which is why you have a Cori Bush in the federal legislature. And it doesn't always have to be that it has to be people who look like us, which is why you have an Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib in the state. I mean, Ilhan Omar more, more than Tlaib because Ilhan, Ilhan Omar's congressional district is overwhelmingly 
white. I mean, when I was looking, you know, when the white boys walked off, and I love them walking off, they should walk off, uh, you know, because y'all punks. But as they were walking out, and I'm looking back there in the back of the chamber, and I see Dwight Evans from Philly and Joe Nahusa from out there in, in the wet. His district, Joe's district is not nearly as black as, as Dwight Evans, who was in the state house in Philly, from Philly up there, you know, up Germantown Avenue. These are, so you have to understand, lower your expectations. In fact, you could put on your sunglasses or close your eyes and vote based on issues. Because Bob Brady represented a district in Philadelphia for many years, a, a older white man, old school, white ethnic union, ruddy face white dude, South Philly, all of, but would go to war for resources for Philadelphians of all backgrounds and a majority black congressional district, the politics don't get caught up in the politics of demographics. I'll be very surprised if now the and they're making big news, the first uh, all woman liberal block. OK, you know, set all that social structure, uh, sports metaphors stuff to the side. But what is true is that Sotomayor, Kagan and now Jackson will likely be not only in dissent, of course, but in they'll be they'll often be writing together. Now, what will be interesting to me is take off the glasses, close your eyes, listen to the dissents, and try to guess who it's gonna be. I'll be willing to bet the $50 I got in the bank, it's gonna be Soto Mayor who continues <laughs> to be the most forceful person. And it's not gonna be because, well, Jackson's got to get her footing. No. Because Sonny York came to the bench with their fire. And of the two of them, this isn't a criticism of Ketanji Brown-Jackson. We don't know. But of the two of them, they said, well, Ketanji Brown-Jackson had criminal defense experience. She had appellate defense experience, which is good. She's the only defender who has any defense, as, as Angie Porter reminds us. She was reading appellate briefs. But that's neither here nor there. Sonny Sotomayor, sure, she was a prosecutor. Yes, yeah, she was the judge. And yes, yeah, she was the, you know, the police. In the, but as Dapper Dan about, Sonia Sotomayor, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He ride for her because she got in there. She looked, he said, she tipped him off before the fans came and said, look, all this stuff you got in here, some of this stuff not going to pass legal muster. You know, we'll be back tomorrow. And then left, gave him time to get his stuff. That's what I'm saying. So that sensibility is in the room. It's not going to come from Kataji Brown Jackson. <laughs> not initially and maybe not ever. But you can't get caught up in how somebody looks and then project onto them your fantasies if you don't understand the social structure we live in and you don't understand the politics of the situation. And it doesn't mean that you throw them out. It just means that you now move accordingly. We can't we, we can't stop playing this 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 sports game of we got somebody who is we. And what changes? What changes? You, you know, it's interesting. I was I one reason I wore my Malcolm today. I'm thinking about Malcolm because. They're, they're practicing lawyers in the United States, fewer than 5% of the lawyers in the United States who practice law in this country are black. Wow. That's, I mean, when we think I about seem, it, I seem to know 511 lawyers myself. Exactly. With people with just, it doesn't jive with how we've been curated. We think, oh, it's a lot of black lawyers, less than 5%. Less than 5%. And if you think about it, when Katanji Brown Jackson was talking yesterday, her daddy is a lawyer. Her brother is a lawyer. I mean, you know, Kataj, military, then Howard, 
for undergrad, BA in history. Then he goes off, gets a JD. He's a president. Less than 5%. But that two areas, lawyers, preachers, well, three if you count teachers, but really lawyers and preachers, these were the professions and these still are professions that we aim our quote unquote smart kids at. Malcolm, up until he was in junior high school, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer. Paul Robeson was a lawyer, his birthday today. I mean, them, lawyer, lawyer, law, why lawyer? Because you think that if we, if we were just smart enough, we could fight this with words. Yeah, that's only partially true. Amari Obadelli, Republican New Africa, who we'll talk about in a minute, and then we finish up this real quick on reparations because Barracoon's going to allow us to get into a lot of this stuff. His brother, Gaidi, well, Amari Obadelli, Richard Henry, born Richard Henry in Philly. His brother, Milton Henry, Gaidi Obadelli, was a lawyer, friends with Malcolm X. But lawyers, lawyers is a very important figure. And so, I mean, it's a very important concept, but they're less than 5%. Really, I think it's like 4.7 or 4.8%, according to the American Bar Association, of the practicing lawyers in this country are black. Now, what I hope uh, soon-to-be Justice Jackson will do, because Breyer's not coming off the bench until June or July, which now, it is now April. She has months to read cases, to think strategically, to figure out what kind of chambers she wants to run. I hope, let me not say hope. I don't hope, I don't expect, we'll see. I wonder what her clerks are going to look like on the day after she was uh, confirmed by the full Senate. And let me say to Tim Scott, I don't have any expectations of you, brother. You're a black man just like me. I read a little book you did. No, he isn't. No. He is not a black man just like you. No, no, but this is what I'm saying. When I say black man, well, you're right. When I'm, when I, I'm sorry, I should have said out of, my, out of my mouth what I was thinking in my head. The social structure doesn't make a distinction between you and me. And so when you wrote your little book with Confederate Gumby, uh, what's that congressman's name? Had this slant haircut, the whiter than a sheet that was always after, uh, what's his name? Oh, he left the legislature. Uh, anyway, he was in the Congress. He was the one yelling Benghazi every other word and when he, they had uh, Hillary Clinton out there for the uh, interviews. Uh, oh, what state? What state? South Carolina. Oh, what's Confederate Gumby's name? I mean, I always call him Confederate Gumby because he had the Gumby haircut and he was just a hardcore white nationalist. He's friends with him and Scott buddies though. Uh, oh, Kurt. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It'll come, it'll come to one of us in a minute and the Nubians may remember. But I got his book back there with Tim Scott somewhere. I, I, some things I just block wall off of my head and then they'll... What's his name? Kurt Schrader? Look no, one Schrader. Schrader would be <laughs> interesting. Uh, Damn it. Trey, Trey Gowdy. Trey Gowdy. Take yeah, Federer okay. Gumby. There it came. I had to just be quiet for a minute. Because it, it was somewhere in the back in, in the archive, brick, trying to break through the wall of relevance. <laughs> you know, okay, yeah, Republican Gumby. Who was throwing me off with the Gumby? Because like, he looked like Gumby. He got the Gumby, the asymmetrical. I was like, Big Daddy Kane was a white man with a lot of moose in his hair from the 90s anyway. But but he told Gowdy, you know, I've been pulled over by the police and I was humiliated. And I was, of course, bro. So in that respect, we black. But he, you know, um, Scott made a very important point when he announced that he wasn't going to vote for Patanji Brown Jackson, that her nomination was historic. That this is a historic process, and this wasn't about race, it was about ideology. I agree with him. I agree with him. 
in this regard. Senator Scott has made a determination that the best way forward for him and his family, and somehow he thinks he's a stand-in for the rest of Black people, is to pursue the political line that he pursues. Clarence Thomas has made us very similar determination. Certainly, if you read uh, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, Corey Robbins' book, Corey Robin makes the argument that we've been making since Thomas got appointed to the Supreme Court, which is, in many ways, Thomas views himself as a Black nationalist. Thomas's calculus, and it's in his opinions, if you take the time to read Clarence Thomas' opinions on the Second Amendment, in particular, among others. But Clarence Thomas's position is, you Negroes just need to clean up your act and bust your ass. And we need to remove all barriers to that. And if you just work hard enough, we can advance not only as individuals, but as a collective. And I think that, you know, it's a flawed argument. It's absurd, but I don't think it's inauthentic. I think he believes that. And, and I think that, you know, it when you don't think we can win, you start making deals. And so I, you know, I'm not mad at Tim Scott for that. I think he's, he's a bit, he's, you know, his behavior is buffoonish and clownish. And I think that it probably causes him, if he has any historical memory, some great pain at times. But you know, he's made the choice. But he does remind us that there is no we. There's no we in humanity. There's no we by blood. There's no we by common language and memory. The only we's we have is the we we build, which is again why Nubia and narrative are important. Why Black Star Network is important. Why you mentioning Roland and him mentioning you or anybody trying to build independent is important because we know two things are for sure. Number one, you can't be moved when you're anchored in community and then influence other things. And the other thing that happens is the social structure starts paying attention because you've got to know that they're going to come for you and they're going to come for you. But I mean, what I would, what I'm waiting to see from justice uh, soon to be justice Jackson is now that you're there and now that you have several months to interview clerks, to think about that, I'm going to see whether or not Texas Southern, Miles College, Howard University, North Carolina, Central Florida, A&M, get some clerks on the bench. Because the article I read in the New York Times the morning after the vote featured uh, about a half dozen women of African descent who are currently at Harvard Law School. And I believe the title, I don't remember what the, uh, is this? I don't think I have it. I put that in the end. Anyway, uh, the headline was something like, these are Katanji Brown Jackson's successors. And I'm thinking, I teach a bunch of her successors at, at Howard. Oh, oh, once you get on Supreme Court, now that you there, Thurgood, who never hired a clerk from Howard. Once that you there, Kataji, it's 2022. Now, if you go up there to Harvard Law and pick some black clerks, I guess that's better than picking the white clerks, but let's look at the numbers. Shall we look at the numbers? Uh, from the last uh, four or five years of clerk hirings, the number one school providing clerks for the Supreme Court, Yale. Number two, Harvard. Number three, University of Chicago. Number four, Stanford. Number five, NYU. Number six, Michigan. Number seven, University of Virginia. Number eight, Berkeley. Number nine, Columbia. Number 10, George Washington. Number, I'm sorry, and tied for 10th, George Washington and Notre Dame. 
Notre Dame? Yeah. How did Notre Dame get? <laughs> Y'all know the handmaid on the clerk on the court now, right? They get ready. <laughs> she gonna turn the whole damn country into a theocracy. Certainly, if she can get Justice Beard to go along with her, and maybe uh, Justice McGonnell uh, Gorsuch to go along with her. Clarence is already there, and he won't ever recuse himself for anything in life if he think it's gonna advance somebody. Uh, but at any rate, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said top ten. Because from 2017 to 2021, the number of clerks from those 10th positions, George Washington and and, uh, and Notre Dame, were six combined. Yale led with 59. Harvard was next with 42. University of Chicago, then dropout, they had 24. 15 from Stanford. Everybody else in single digits. My point is, what I'm now going to look at and see is whether or not the demographics in justice, soon to be Justice Jackson's clerks, are going to look different, not just in terms of visual, but in terms of where they are coming from. And that's still not a solution. We'll get into the class dimensions of that in a minute. And by the way, Joe, mummy, baby, mummy, the mummy, keep going. Childs has been vetted. So her confirmation to the uh, Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit should be pro forma. Kruger, maybe let her stay in California or maybe put her on the federal bench because these appeals court uh, slots are very rare. But you're going to need to do some more appeal. Uh, keep the line moving, Joe. You've been doing good about uh, you know, closer to a third than a quarter of his federal bench nominations so far have been women. Many of them black women, maybe like 20%. Keep it going. Keep it going. In other words, don't give them any rest because guess what? Young Josh Hawley and all them cats obsessed with QAnon and pedophiles and all that stuff that they dream about it. They must dream about because they talk about it all the time. They must dream about it. Anyway, they have rallied their clan base. And so unless we wake up very quickly, there's going to be a change in the United States Senate in the midterms. And as Rafael Cruz said, when uh, they thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. If she win, no problem. We can operate the Supreme Court with eight justices. See, these people playing by a different set of rules, boy. And I know you want to be bipartisan, but bipartisanship don't, that means white nationalism in America. Anytime you vote in California for the United States Senate and they vote in Wyoming in for the United States Senate and the voters in Wyoming's vote is 66 times more powerful than your vote because they get to and you get to, and it's 66 times more people in California than it is in Wyoming, then you understand the basic math of white settler states. This white settler state is set up to replicate itself until it fragments. People hear me say that all the time, and they wince. But let me be very clear about what I mean. You can't fix the United States Senate without fixing the United States Senate. Everybody can't get the equal amount of senators unless... A bunch of y'all going to move to Wyoming more than Kanye and whoever. <laughs> nah, they're going to get two and California going to get two. And unless you fix the Supreme Court, there are 13 courts of appeals in this country that hear the overwhelming majority of federal appeals cases. If there are 13 courts of appeals and nine justices on the Supreme Court, and there's no number of justices in the Supreme Court in the deeply flawed, uh, in fact, bad, if you take uh, uh, Ellie's uh, 
uh, Ellie Mistals, uh, you know, and Ellie ain't the first one to say this, uh, you know, Gerald Horn, people been saying, we all been saying it for years. The United States Constitution was not written by gods and it wasn't written by the children of God as the founding fathers. It's a deeply flawed 18th century document set up as a compromise to extend a settler project. And in a country that those people could never have imagined, it must be remade. You can't fix it without fixing it. And fixing it doesn't mean patching it. Fixing it means ripping this part out. And that means the upper chamber of the federal legislature that is a check on any possibility of removing control from white elites. And that might mean, and probably does mean, and should mean logically, maybe you should have a Supreme Court justice at least a number that matches the number of courts of appeal. So go from 9 to 13. The reason they cry bloody murder is because they don't have any rules. Their rule is rule. That's their rule. Rule or ruin. That's it. That's young Josh Hawley. That's Ted Cruz. And Cruz, if Hillary Clinton win this election, we won't want to, we won't, we won't confirm anybody she nominate. And so keep it going, Joe. Keep those appointments going. And Clarence. Clarence, it's some other people involved in this beyond the ones you can see with your eye. Your granddaddy might be one of them. And if for some reason you can't return to work and you have to quit, as Jesus told Judas just before Judas sold him out to the feds, whatever you do, do it quickly. But the point is that because <laughs> there may be a flip because people think voting don't matter. Yeah, voting matters, but vote, there's a ceiling to voting. So anyway, I think the um, we have to understand that the Kataji Brown Jackson confirmation, we are not going to know. Um, we're not going to know, but here, but I'll say a few, just a couple of other things very quickly about what. <laughs> now I got Brian Wilson in my head. Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if? Kataji Brown Jackson, and I saw her remarks yesterday. As I said, I resisted the urge to be like, I'm getting down there. No, I could watch this from where I am. I don't need to be down there. If she tacked toward the public model of some of the previous justices, uh, even the one that she clerked for, and uh, to my memory, there's only been one black clerk from Howard, and I think he clerked for John Paul Stevens uh, years ago, obviously. Uh, RBG, champion of affirmative action and liberal. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think, had one black clerk in the whole time she was there, and none when 13 years she was on the D.C. bench. How many clerks do they get? Uh, that's a good, good question. Maybe like a dozen or... Wow. Oh, yeah. On the court for like 100 years. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Yeah. No question. No question. RBG. Riding the fame on the back of Pauly Murray. But y'all got to come in. If you're not in there, to go, you got to look at our conversation on Pauly Murray to understand what I, why I said what I said. I said it the other day uh, on Rolling Show, Ellie Mistyle was on there. And I said, Ellie, you know what I'm talking about? RBG. I'm talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Y'all better watch out now. The same. Uh, people who made the documentary on Pauli Murray made the one on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the one on Pauli Murray is better than the one before it. I'm sorry. No, that was the first documentary. Yeah, right. Now, we still got to make a governance documentary. That's on the list for Nubia and narrative. We got to make a we got to make one because people don't understand Pauli Murray. But in, in a country 
probably Murray would have been on the Supreme Court had she chosen to want to do that because she didn't want to tell spots with Robinson, who should have been on the Supreme Court, who was the chief justice on the on the circuit court for D.C. That same court Ketanji Brown-Jackson was on, the same court Robert Bork was on, the same court Antonin Scalia was on, the same court Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on for a term. Spotswood Robinson, Howard Law, was the chief judge of that court. In other words, the bench for the Supreme Court. He would have been on the Supreme Court, but Polly Murray told Spotswood Robinson when she was in school and he was teaching at Howard, oh, I bet you money that segregation is going to end and fall and they're going to overturn these segregation laws and spots with Robinson's like oh yeah you think yeah she probably murray is workshopping as a student at howard law the legal trajectory and the 14th amendment arguments that end up in her writings that influence ruth Bader ginsburg to make the arguments she made around gender in the 14th amendment so i'm just saying but she ain't hired no black clerks though rbg notorious you notorious notorious but i hope that uh you know wouldn't it be nice if katanji brown jackson would not follow rbg's model and i don't think she will there's gonna be plenty of black and brown clerks uh you know asians are uh, obviously considered a minority and i you know you know i'm i understand there's decorum but i understand the only rule for the white nationals is rule and all the white nationals ain't white clarence thomason Tim Scott and Clarence Thomas ain't recused himself and his wife is at the middle of a whole ass coup d'etat in the United States but Katanji Brown Jackson um, they're going to hear SFFA versus Harvard, the North Carolina, Harvard and North Carolina cases, the affirmative action cases, they're going to hear those cases in the fall and she's already said she's going to recuse herself. I understand you want to play by the rules. You own now. Now, Clarence Thomas is technically breaking the rules. Larry Tribe was talking about that a couple of weeks ago to uh, Lawrence O'Donnell. I don't watch MSNBC or CNN. Sometimes I'll see, I'll read something or somebody will send me something. They said, did you see this clip? And I'll look and I'll watch the clip where Tribe explained that the letter of the law, so you got to recuse yourself if you or the spouse. Last I checked, them two is married. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Clarence Thomas and Jenny Thomas. You know, you read uh, Jane Mayer in The New Yorker. She's been tracking all them. Jane Mayer is like the uh, the Omar <laughs> of all this dark money stuff. And I, so she she got Jenny Thomas dead to rights. But I'm saying Clarence Thomas not going to recuse himself. So wouldn't it be nice if KBJ uh, says she ain't going to recuse herself in that affirmative action case? You're not going to win. But your dissent, which I'll come to in about three minutes, is, the, is would be the issue. And, and I said, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice in several categories? Wouldn't it be nice if KBJ became a public thinker from the bench. She clerked for Breyer. Breyer would give public talks. Anthony, Anthony Kennedy was known for dealing with inter, inter, international forums. He would go to Salzburg, Global Forum, and talk there. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave public talks all the time. John Roberts, Johnny John, and tore up his court. Now, he worried. Uh, but at any rate, he gives public talks and Scalia, who I have a great amount of respect for, even as he's an open enemy of our common humanity. Antonin Scalia was known for going out, talking his crazy theories and then inviting people to attack him. And then they debate Now that's intellectual confidence. In fact, in that adoptive couple versus baby girl, Scalia and Ginsburg, I'm sorry, Scalia and Sotomayor wrote dissents. And I'm now, as memory serves me correctly, it's been a couple of years since I reread Adopted Couple versus Baby Girl. But in that case, part of Scalia's argument that the Indian Child Welfare Act should be upheld on this question of letting Native Americans have the first pass at adopting children was family. Now, he's a good Roman Catholic. 
Scalia was never scared of no intellectual warfare. I can deal with a white nationalist like that. You know, as Tiger Woods walks around down there in South Carolina playing the Ma Augusta, rather, Georgia. They, they blend together in my mind because, you know, North Augusta, James, that's right there on the line. Mm -hmm. I see Cal and, and the master sits on a road named for John C. Calhoun, the intellectual architect of the Confederacy, also the inventor of the filibuster, as we talked about. I could deal with a white boy like that, at least for the time we arguing. And then at that point, when the whistle blow off, we go get the guns. Now we got to do some other stuff. You know what I'm saying? But if we're going to have a fight, if you so confident in your architecture, you willing to debate it? I take five minutes and let, let's sit down, skull to skull. That's what Jacob Cruz called intellectual warfare. So wouldn't it be nice if Katanji Brown Jackson modeled a Scalia in that regard? You know, you, you talk to young people, hey, you're a great role model. But, you know, in addition to talking to young people, again, shout out to Sonia Sotomayor, one of, if not the first trip she made after being confirmed, she came to Howard Law School and talked to the law students. First question those students asked is, how do I get to be a clerk? And she was like, well, uh, you got to learn to read and write beautifully, what y'all are doing. You got to love the law. I see that's what y'all doing. And it was like, yeah, okay. So how do I get to be a clerk? In other words, come on, sis. Because the first thing she said was she want to diversify the clerk pool because too many of them are Harvard and Yale. And I just read y'all the numbers. So did you change it now? To her credit, at least maybe 20, 25% of her clerks been non-white. But non-white don't mean black. So it wouldn't it be nice if Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, it would say something to people. And I'm not even caping for Howard. Pick two clerks, one from Texas Southern, one from FAMU. Because, you know, one of the arguments for Michelle Childs getting on the bench is she didn't go to Ivy League schools. You want to pick some black people? Don't pick them same black people that we expect now. The ones who are now. You got the sister locks. I'm with you on that, sis. But I'm talking about them ones who really would prefer not to put that line in their head or the straight comb, but they went on and did it anyway because somebody told them that's how you get ahead. That's a blackness for sure, but it's not necessarily a blackness that we want to see. Wouldn't it be nice? The second category is in terms of behavior. You know, well, I guess I've already talked about that. Your behavior. Hire those clerks. Let's see a few clerks that came up from slavery. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some of y'all know what I mean. Them first generation Negroes, you know those stories they like. Not the first generation Negro that got to Yale. The first generation Negro that's at North Carolina Central right now, finishing her third year of law school, who now looks at Katanji Brown Jackson, who has been delirious with happiness, and then applies for a clerkship, great grades, great recommendations, great experience, and don't get it. And better yet, because you are now on the Supreme Court. See, people have to understand how these courts work. Supreme Court, courts of appeal, district courts. Supreme Court judges also have influence at the courts of appeals and district court level. Get on the phone, sis. If you're going to still prefer your Ivy League crew, you need to call the D.C. Court of Appeals. You need to call the 11th Circuit, the 4th Circuit, them circuits in the South, you know, the slave circuits, the ones where they ride and they wreaking havoc on us, 11 and 4. The ninth, that's cool. The ninth out there, California, they ain't flipped that one yet. But 11th and the 4th, that's the old Confederacy. Get on the phone or send a message, back channel from some of the people who were sitting in the yard yesterday clapping. We need to see some black clerks. And I want them to come from HBCU law schools. Okay? I mean, behavior. These are the subtle things that we don't always see. Again, less than 5% of practicing lawyers in this country of the United States of America, and we know we global right now, are black. So let's continue. I mean, decisions. Woo! They're going after unenumerated rights. If you think 
that uh, Prop 8, DOMA, the right of gay and lesbian couples to marry, you think that's safe? <laughs> You're not paying attention. There are no safe rights except the ones that you can enforce. And most of the law in this country is judge-made law. It's not statutory law. It's statutory interpretation. So people think, well, you can't use race. This is the argument we were in a couple of weeks ago with the reparations thing. People think, oh, you know, you can't, you can't argue about race. No, that's judge-made law. I would encourage you all to re-examine the 14th Amendment and look at the legislative history of the 14th Amendment. That amendment is being misused and the bad interpretation began after Reconstruction with the civil rights cases and all these other, well, when you realize you're gonna lose, you put in place the language for when you have the different political context and you can win. Look at Harlan. People love quoting John Marshall Harlan for uh, his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson where he says our constitution is colorblind. But if you read the whole dissent, it'll make you cringe. Because one of the things that's in there too is, well, you know, the white race in this country has been a superior race. And so it looks like it's going to be going on. But we we'll, we would only diminish ourselves and be less great if we didn't understand that this constitution is colorblind. And it, wait, what? What did he say about the white race? So you nigger, <laughs> stop quoting journalists. <laughs> Go back and read the language. Now that dissent pops back up by by Brown versus Moore, it takes several generations. It takes a shift. It takes the end of World War II. It takes the anti-colonial movement. It takes the United States realizing they can't keep playing this white nationalist game in an international arena where people are picking sides and a huge cluster of non-white people have decided, along with a handful of white countries, that they're going to join something called the non-aligned movement and they ain't picking between Russia and China and the United States. They're going to stay on their own. Well, you better do something as a matter of public policy. So you go unanimous on Brown versus Board and you look at yourself and say, I'm magnanimous. And part of the way that you're able to do that is to reach back to a badly decided 1896 case versus Ferguson and take the dissent. Wouldn't it be nice if Kataji Brown Jackson following Sonia Sotomayor, even following? Oh, pause. Footnote. Harlan's dissent in Plessy. Eh. Harlan's dissent in the civil rights cases more important, read Harlan's dissent in the civil rights cases where he says the 13th Amendment is being misused here. Because the civil rights cases is where the Supreme Court starts clawing back those protections that were in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments by saying, well, if it's not state action, it's reserved to the states. And uh, the federal government really can't intervene if it's private action. And so you really can't do anything about that. By the way, that's the argument they're going to make in this uh, Holland case where they're going to try to disembowel the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's the argument they're going to make in the uh, cases when they fi file them, when they start talking about uh, overturning gay marriage and all that, because they, they, they're never going to accept a loss. And so wouldn't it be nice if Katanji Brown Jackson, in her dissents in the short term, put the language in place for whoever comes after her or maybe her in 10, 15, 20 years, if they're still in the United States? Again, it's an open question the people to draw on that to come forward because you're not going to win next year. You're not going to win the year after. They may break it before you get a chance to stitch together this place you call the greatest country in the world, clearly playing to the cheap seats because that ain't true, but a story for another day. Wouldn't it be nice? And that's what I said. That was the footnote. Now back. So not just Harlan. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
Remember that descent in Lily Ledbetter's case? Led, led, uh, Ledbetter versus Goodyear, I guess it was. She was working at a Goodyear plant in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta, in Alabama. The white woman. And they kept shortening her check. And then she found out that they've been shortening her check for years. So when she files, it goes all the way up to Supreme Court and Rehnquist before, you know, they pried, the, uh, pried his gavel from his cold, dead hands. Rehnquist like, well, you can only recover for the pay period when you found out. You can't go back years. RBG didn't have the numbers. But from the bench, and she read her dissent from the bench, she said, Congress, fix this. The first act that Barack Obama signed in his presidency was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. But it was from Ginsburg's dissent because, you know, the white nationalists and their lackeys, shout out Clarence, they had the majority. And so they was like, Congress wants to fix this. They can fix this, but we can't intervene. <laughs> Ginsburg was like, in dissent, fix this. People was like, oh my God, wouldn't it be nice if KBJ did that? And Kagan, nah, I ain't looking for Kagan. Kagan get a little husky sometimes, but wouldn't it be nice to read some high quality, straight fire power dissents authored by Ketanji Brown Jackson? and joined by Sotomayor and Kagan. Give Sonya a break. Y'all can trade them off. Wouldn't it be nice? Now, of course, I ain't hoping, I ain't expecting. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be nice in terms of how they're using the shadow docket? That's a whole conversation for another day. We talked a little about the shadow docket, and she's not going to be there on the bench for the uh, the uh, Dobbs versus Jackson case, the Mississippi abortion case, the 15 week abortion case. But there are going to be some more abortion cases if they don't get all of Roe, which they might get all of Roe with this case that they're going to hear. Uh, but dissents are very important. They're very important. And clerks are very important, as I said. Wouldn't it be nice? Because clerks do the researching, clerks often do the first drafts of opinions. Clerks, then when they leave that clerkship, often become the faculty at law schools. Get some of them HBCU sisters and brothers, and then when they leave that clerkship, let them come back and teach at the HBCU law schools. Ooh, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be nice? Your brother went to Howard undergrad. So, you know, I, I fully expect you're going to come give talks. You're going to take a lot of pictures. You're very photogenic, chocolate color sister, got the locks, very beautiful, you know, like all black women are. So you're going to sit there. You're going to come. Have the children going to be surrounding you. It's very nice. Now, when you finish that picture, what comes out your mouth in the speech? I want it to be more than, well, wouldn't it be nice if it was more than be like me? Because, see, be like me is a form of blackness that conforms to the Western concept of the state. The Western concept of the state stresses individual rights. So when you try to argue for collective self-determination, the response of the legal system and social structure of the Western states will be, no, this isn't about collective groups. This is about individual rights. If you preserve your individual rights, then as a country, and see, that's really a lie, but to understand the nature of the lie, as Neely Fuller and Francis Chris Wells would say, you have to understand white supremacy. When they say it's about individual rights, that's a trick. Because then the next question you should ask is, well, how do you define the individual? That's where whiteness hides. Colorblind constitutionalism, which is what they use Harlan's dissent in Plessy for. Standing for whiteness 
That's what individual means. So when they say states' rights, when they say the rights of the individual, freedom of association, that First Amendment, which is what John Roberts been using to run the table, uh, and then linking corporations to the First Amendment like he did in, in, in 2010, Citizens United, which opened up the floodgates for all the money. It was Oracle in the New York Times day for yesterday by all these corporations and all these billionaires, Mercer and them boys and all them, and how they have, they were just met. I think they were in Miralago, one of the meetings, where they're looking at going beyond the, the, the RNC and, and the Republican Party because they need to get in here and cement this thing because it's all falling apart. This is all freedom of association arguments they're making. But when they say individual, what they really mean, they're preserving whiteness. Whiteness is the standard by which individualism is lived in these Western settler states. Now, well, let me pause there for a second. So, Katanji Brown-Jackson, wouldn't it be nice when you make your public appearances that in addition to your moving personal story, the story of your parents and your family and, you know, the, the, the public defender, uh, not the public defender, the yeah, yeah, public defender, pellet work you did, and all the you know experiences and how this is so important. And yeah, wouldn't it be nice if you talked about policy, not on opinions that you're before the court, because we know you're not gonna color outside the lines. That's reserved for white nationalists and the Negroes who love them. Shout out to non-recusing Clarence Thomas. So I'm saying you're not gonna color outside the lines because it's fragile. 18th century document that y'all keep trying to prop up, it's going to fall apart. Trust me on that. But if you keep trying to prop up, I get it. So you're not going to do that. But take a page from Tony Scalia. I'm sorry, Nino Scalia. <laughs> Antonin Scalia. Take a page from him. At least engage in intellectual warfare because the people who have never read a case, never read a brief, who watching TV, who just hear that you're brilliant and all this kind of stuff and repeat it, well, now it's time to show that brilliance, that ostensible brilliance. Let's see it in what you say. The photos are going to be great. They're going to inspire. There'll be the surplus value. There'll be the unintended consequences that nobody can see, including you. Because imagine you had parents, HBCU graduates, who gave you two African names and gave your brother a gloss on your African name, who's nine years younger than you. And... Clearly, they had something in their mind a little bit different than, oh, boy, I hope this name don't keep her out of Harvard. They <laughs> wasn't thinking about that. And the unintended consequence is everybody had to say Katanji. Rafael Cruz covering his ethnicity until he vomited out, I'm a Hispanic man. Can I say I'm an Asian man? What is a woman? What's the definition of a woman? Marshall Blackburn covering her own gender. What's the definition of a woman? <laughs> You're Katanji. Oh, they got to say your name. When they swear you in, sis, make sure they say Katanji on Yika Brown Jackson. Say it all. Because <laughs> that may be the only time <laughs> that we hear it all. But my point is, beyond that optics, now it will be nice to hear that substance. Let's hear some of that intellectual firepower. And so... This raises the question, sitting there in the Rose Garden or wherever they were, um, when, when I was down there last June because of Ajwa, I'm looking at, I don't know, had they, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I think they had already started the re-landscaping after, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, brought in the Soviet style 
<laughs> maybe Putin's people told her, hey, man, uh, y'all got to tear that shit up because, you know, we trying to colonize. Anyway, but I think they'd already begin to restore it wherever. They, I guess they were on the lawn. Was it the South Lawn, the North Lawn? I don't remember. South, South, South Lawn. They were on the South Lawn. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, watching them on the South Lawn, it raised that question again. Last week, we were talking about reparations. We said we'd do part two today. But all the Nubians who's watching it now and in, in a minute, everybody else is going to see it. And again, what you started with is very important. These independent, these independent platforms and these independent institutions cannot be overstated in terms of the value. This is collective work. This is self-determination. This flies in the face <coughs> of white self-determination, also known as preserving the rights of the individual. You know that white self-determination appears when other people's self-determination begins to upset the apple cart. And by white self-determination, I don't even mean just whiteness as a kind of social construct. I mean whiteness once you look inside whiteness, whiteness as a class hierarchy as well. This is the assault on organized labor in part because that's not an assault on poor whites. They should be with organized labor. But that's when the rich whites trigger whiteness as a cultural construct to weaponize those poor whites to prevent the rich whites from having their position teetering because organized labor may come after them. They lost in New York with Amazon. They're going to lose some more. Organized labor may be on the map. So uh, wouldn't it be nice if Katanji Brown-Jackson in dissent was stronger on the labor question? We'll see. Then everybody footnote who is arguing that she's against black women and black people because of that Lockheed Martin, I would encourage you to read that opinion because when you read that opinion, as we talked about a few weeks ago, what you'll see is that one of the conditions of that settlement was that black people who work there could not now bring other lawsuits. So one way of reading it, I'm not saying it's the only way to read it, certainly not, and she should have taken more, she should have written quicker. She's going to have the best clerks in the country now, so she got to get that that writing pace up in terms of, you know, uh, it's not a criticism, just an observation. So yeah, precluded their ability to then go back and, and, and maneuver and appeal. But on the substance of the argument, you could argue that one way of reading it, and, and I think it was Kenneth Mackinham in the Washington Post that brought this out, you know, is to say that by rejecting that settlement, it preserved the ability of other blacks who work there to sue in the future. I mean, it's different ways of reading that. But anyway, wouldn't it be nice on the labor question if you see even in dissent some attempt to preserve arguments that perhaps a majority Supreme Court can reach back for at a future date? Because what you have to understand is between, you know, after the Civil War amendments, there was about a 10 year period where they stood up quite well, including uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is still good law. Shout out to Brian, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the billionaire who uh, owns all the stuff they try to get him to save uh, Byron Allen. We talked, that's one of the first times we talked, we talked about how he was using that act, you know, to, for his own interest. But um, after those civil, after reconstruction, you see a hundred year truce between white folks where they let the South do whatever the hell they want and hide under states' rights. That's when Jim Crow and them, it took a hundred years for black people to get enough force to fight back in a way that broke through. And that was the so-called civil rights movement. And it only took place because of what was going on internationally. People who want to just uh, uh, um, um, constrict these arguments to black people in the United States who went through slavery. It's utterly absurd to do that when you understand the impact of global movements on local movements. But it took a hundred years. It took the expansion 
of European empire, beefs between the European countries, grabbing for stuff in the empire. That's W.B. Du Bois, 20, uh, 1915, the African roots of the war, World War One, then World War II. And with the breaking of the old European settler colony-based empires after World War II and the anti-colonial movement, what you then see is room to operate loosening up in these former settler colonies turned into settler states. But the point is it took black people a hundred years to, 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 to be able to take advantage of that crack in the social structure to move forward a little bit. But after that was over, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, there has been the long war to claw those gains back by white nationalism. And the, and the arguments they've made, moving affirmative action from remedying past discrimination to diversity, reinforcing the idea somehow that any use of race requires strict scrutiny in the U.S. Constitution, which it absolutely does not. You made that shit up. And you're supposed to. It's what a judge does. Mr. Balls and Strikes, Mr. Balls and Strikes, uh, Johnny John Roberts, who in 2010 was like, these corporations can spend more money than God if they have it because they are individuals. That ain't in the Constitution. You know what? I ain't mad at you, John, because now you broke it. And if Biden gets another bite at the apple, you probably praying like everybody else. Because what John Roberts understands, what he has been saying in public in his public pronouncements, is that the legitimacy of the judicial branch, the one of the three that is unelected, is at stake right now. Because more and more people are seeing finally that this is, y'all politicians too. You're hiding behind words. You're hiding behind the notion of intellectual combat. But at the end of the day, it has become increasingly political, not partisan, set that shit aside. But anyway, but the point I'm trying to make is that watching them, watching her, watching that South Lawn exercise, watching the hype of greatest country in the world and thank you, blah, 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 and God got me. And okay, I got it. It's all good. I'm looking at that and I'm asking the question again as we turn toward closing. What are black people? When we say black people, what do we mean? Is it a demographic? Yeah, it's a demographic. It's defined by what we are not. We are not what? White. Understand the origins of white blackness or whiteness. The origin of racial hierarchy in the contemporary world, the last several centuries are driven at the core by a, a kind of shifting definition, depending on context of whiteness. It's very important. It shifts. It is so powerful that we can say Ketanji Brown Jackson is the first black woman to be on the Supreme Court and Sonia Sotomayor is sitting there who in Puerto Rico would probably be considered white or white adjacent. But when you say that Sonia Sotomayor is a woman of color and Kataji Brown Jackson is black, just pause. You've said that in the same sentence. Now that you've said it in the same, came out of your mouth, not mine. Now that it came out of the same sentence, I have questions. Just one question. Okay. If Sonia Sotomayor is a person of color and Ketanji Brown Jackson is black, what color is Sonia Sotomayor? Well, she's brown. Okay, she's brown. So that means indigenous? Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. Okay. They're white Puerto Ricans. Yeah. She one of them? Well, we said, I, no, you said person of color. I ain't say it. You said it. So where the color come from? Spain? I mean, yes, the Moors were there. Yes, the Arabs and Africans were there for 800 years. So you, you say in Spain. But you said Puerto Rico. You didn't say Madrid. Hmm. Uh, you know what? Don't try to answer. Go read Francis Chris Wilson. Because <laughs> if you don't understand white supremacy, everything else you think you understand will only confuse you. But the point is that this question of black people, who are black people? Well, the first thing we are is a demographic shaped by whiteness. 
And whiteness dictates the terms of how we even talk about ourselves. In fact, it is so powerful that we would assume that somebody look like us, think like us. We would assume there's an us for them to do. That's why I say I ain't mad at Tim Scott or, 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 or Clarence Thomas. I'm not mad at, at Janice Rogers Brown or Janice Brown Rogers. You know, he said, well, they nominate her. He ain't nominate her. No. And they said, well, it's because Biden said when he was the head of the judiciary, they were going to filibuster her. Well, you should have tried it. But you didn't. Ain't nobody mad at her. I'm not mad at her either. Black people run the range if you're only defining blackness as demographic. But when we say black, we mean something else. Is it a group trauma? Well, that's what the ADOS and foundational black Americans and all the people, I ain't mad at them either. I understand. And as you're making that argument, what you're really saying without knowing perhaps you're saying it is you can't win. You can't get even. You can't get out of the game. So you want to see what your master might allow you to get if mm. you play the rules by his game. So we're going to get rid of everybody in this except people who can prove they're descended from enslaved Africans. Is that the mother may I that will let me go the next square? Mm. Do you understand there's no argument you can make that's going to let them advance you? The only chance you got is to walk away from the game. And when you walk away from the game, that's when you see the thing drop and you see who they are. Who is they? What W.E.B. Du Bois called the white rulers of the world. That ain't even all the white people. In fact, it's the overwhelming majority of white people are not in that group. But whiteness makes them think they are. And whiteness got you thinking that they are too. But understand that there's no argument you can make. So if you're talking about a group trauma, the irony is you may have a better possibility of a reparations argument. Let's look at that for a minute. Remember, Prof, uh, the affirmative action cases back in the early 2000s, the University of Michigan case, Gruder and Gratz. Um, Shooty came after that, the affirmative action case. That's the one that, uh, and then Fisher. The whole argument that the question is, can you use race as a factor in college admissions? That's the one they getting ready to cut the whole head off with students uh, for fair admissions versus Harvard. And Katanji already said she's gonna recuse herself and I winced, but I understand you trying to get that vote and you really wasn't talking to that hillbilly, uh, cosplay hillbilly Ted Cruz from Canada. Uh, and you <laughs> you really weren't talking to chinless Josh Hawley or uh, chinless Tom Landa Cotton and the rest of them white nationalists. You really talking to maybe Collins Murkowski and Mitt Romney. Because Doug Johnson told you after they got him out to paint as the United States Senator and he was your Sherpa who you thanked yesterday, he then told you that you really need to figure out if you can get a couple of them votes over there. Because Tim Scott then already heard his master's voice, like that little dog on the RCA logo listening to that thing. And they then told him, no, I'm sorry. So, but so you got to figure out if there's some other ones over there who are willing to cross the aisle, so to speak. We think we got the cosplay coal miner sewed up. The Toonie loomed and kind of been quiet so you might be able so she wasn't really talking to them when she said she recused herself at this point i'm in i ain't recusing myself from shit but but actually though like cory booker i think you actually believe in that document unlike the rule of ruin people so you probably will recuse yourself but they're getting ready to cut the whole head off the rest of affirmative action but remember they changed the rationale for affirmative action from remedying past discrimination to 
uh, diversity around the time right at Baki. That's Lewis Powell and them. But the point I'm about to raise is those people in ADOS and Foundation of Black Americans are saying we're going to exclude everybody else. And if you want reparations in the Caribbean, you go find out who did it to you. And if you want reparations, well, you go find out who did it to you without reading any of the literature to understand that's exactly what people are doing everywhere. And also meeting with everybody else internationally to figure out the best strategies. You might not recognize that if you say that there is a group trauma that black people in the United States experience, that when you look at those Michigan cases in the early 2000s, look at the amicus briefs, the friend of the court briefs that were submitted by everybody who had an opinion. One of those briefs was submitted by the National Co uh, Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. And they sent it in, I.G. Auditoro, a friend and good chief sister who was the chief general counsel, still alive, black woman lawyer. Uh, Kevin Otterson was the counsel of record. Uh, Desiree Ferguson and Imhotep Alkebulan were representing the NCBL. That is the National Conference of Black Lawyers, which was founded in 1968. The Cobra dates back to 87, as we talked about last week. They filed an amicus, and their argument was that affirmative action in education is a form of reparations. Now, that's the smaller argument, but the larger argument is this. They say, go back and look at the legislative history and the debate around and the passing of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment explicitly talks about redressing the harm. So what they say is that affirmative action should not be treated as strict scrutiny. In other words, it involves race. But once you heard race, race, strict scrutiny, strict scrutiny, strict scrutiny. Okay, strict scrutiny. Uh, compelling state interest? I don't know about that. Well, what's the compelling state interest? Uh, diversity, which means whiteness. Think about that. Does diversity help us or them? Diversity helped the hell out of the University of South Carolina last weekend. Don Staley handed out that ass whooping. Her girls handed that ass whooping. And I'm watching all the black family and stuff in the section cheering. The rest of the crowd, mostly white. And as they interviewing the sister national player of the year, I hear the band strike up a terrible version of talking out the side of your net because they've been listening to Claflin in South Carolina State like LSU been listening to Southern and, uh, and Grambling. And now these white bands in the South playing terrible versions of a black fight song that was a riff off a cameo song. Cause I remember I was in the band when Cameo's album was out and everybody started playing that. That's the song. And of course, you know, I'm partial. Even though I went to Tennessee State, was in that band. I'm part of the Howard's version because Howard had the good sense to put the go-go beat underneath their version of net. So when I'm looking at them interviewing these sisters at University of South Carolina after they beat Connecticut's ass and I hear that band strike up this terrible orchestrated version of net, I'm like, damn, that's what diversity means. That's what Lewis Powell, diversity means a pair of black earrings on whiteness. Some black ball players, some black valedictorians, a couple of black coaches, and you congratulate yourself on this is the America we want to see. The only thing better than South Carolina beating Connecticut the other night would have been if it was South Carolina State. But see, the victims of diversity with a black, well, how does diversity help us? It don't. You Negroes are here to help us. What? Whiteness. Whiteness. There is standing for whiteness. There's even legal standing for whiteness called states' rights and individual rights. And you can at me at it. We should discuss that because believe me, even the people who don't like it would have to concede once you start reading through the case law. You have to understand it is the invisible, unspoken thing, the default position that is articulated as if we have a common understanding. Everybody in here has heard the, of, of the reasonableness standard. In criminal law, for example. And by the way, parenthetically, we should talk about this because Katanji Brown Jackson is sitting on a court where I think in the, the year 2000, 2021 term, about 14% of the cases that were heard at the Supreme Court level appeals were criminal cases. 
2019, about 20% were criminal cases. There's a case now winding its way through the courts out of Texas, death penalty case, black dude, white woman, their children. He murdered all of them, clearly mentally disturbed. They're trying to stop him from execution. On the jury, during voir dire, during when they interviewing jurors, those of you who did jury duty, they asked you them questions, right? They trying to get the jury that's going to put this guy to death. It's a heinous crime. Nobody's defending it. Man, when I hear Angie and them who did death penalty appeals case talk about the facts of cases and how they couldn't sleep at night. I mean, some of the most terrible things. Anybody defending the action. But in terms of jury selection, the damn prosecutor asking openly racist questions. What do you think about interracial marriage? Well, I mean, Loving versus Virginia in, in 1967. I mean, interracial marriage is legal now. <laughs> America, we've come so far. <laughs> Doma, Prop 8. I was down there when they did the oral argument. I just wanted to see. Oh, they was, they was throwing out Loving versus Virginia, like Mildred uh, Loving and Richard Loving was standing there and not ancestors. I'm like, damn. When I went back down there just to see at, when they did the when they announced the opinion and the cat ran out of the court, had the big rainbow flag, everybody cheering. I could count the black people down there. Like, damn, is this like uh, our man Howard French born into blackness? Did y'all piggyback ride us into, I mean, some black LBGTQ people too, right? I don't see many of them out here today. They was all down here for the rally. I mean, so, you know, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this. None of that is safe. None of that is safe. So we saw, well, love me. Wait, you had a jury in Texas where they asked, what do you think about interracial marriage? Several of the jurors was like, I'm against it. I think God is against it. And you put them on the jury. And that's the jury that sends them to death. That appeal is working its way through the court. Now, Katanji, what you going to say? Because a, 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 a fifth of the criminal cases, uh, the cases, the appeal cases they heard Supreme Court level a couple years ago, as late as a couple years ago, were criminal cases. So, and you've been a bench judge. In fact, most of your, in fact, everything in your trial experience is trial experience up until they put you in the court of appeals. So we're going to need you to speak up if it gets there. Because guess what, Clarence Thomas? It don't matter. They didn't do it. It don't matter. They don't do it. It don't matter. But they still, it don't matter. When it comes to death penalty, he's like, kill them all. Read Corey, uh, read his book. Read Corey, Robbie, Corey Robbins' book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. On the death penalty, gee, Clarence Thomas is like, sort it out later. Let God get sorted out. Kill them all. <laughs> this is it. Clarence Thomas, boy. But anyway, my point is that in these cases, we have to understand that the question of group trauma in terms of identity, the question of group trauma can be displaced. If you look at the amicus brief in Michigan that that uh, that in Cobra filed, what Aju and them argued was that harm, harm in fact, is the standard. It shouldn't be race. It shouldn't be race. In other words, you don't need to use a rationale of diversity as a way to try to whistle past the graveyard of strict scrutiny because you've said black people, which means they think black people, race, race, strict scrutiny. Huh. Okay. Compelling state interest. What's mm, compelling state interest? Diversity. Oh, that helps us, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, diversity, then we'll let, we'll carry that for a while. And that's able to sneak affirmative action, keep going. They can really wipe that out though. And then it's like, okay, is it narrowly tailored enough? Well, I don't know. Anthony Kennedy, can we use class as a proxy for race? Them people in California, can we use lineage as a proxy for race? Y'all understand you said lineage, but they're going to say race, right? It's still going to be strict scrutiny. Y'all got some lawyers on here. In fact, y'all had the dean of Berkeley Law School told y'all that. But anyway, neither here nor there. There's another way of doing it. Why do you keep going the mother may I route? 
You need to blow up the game. Make them read the 14th Amendment and look at the legislative history, which is what Audra and them were arguing in their amicus to the Michigan case when they said the 14th Amendment is not purely a colorblind enactment. And that language colorblind comes from the dissent in Plessy. It's not in the Constitution. It's judge-made law, which means it could be unmade by judges. Wouldn't it be nice if Kataji Brown-Jackson started saying, you know what, I'm on here now. Let's get to work. All them nights of studying, I'm getting ready to come in here and reinterpret this whole thing. Because that's what they're doing. And, and what Ajuanam said is the 14th Amendment is not purely a colorblind enactment, but it's a necessary legal tool for equality in the aftermath of chattel slavery. Use of the 14th Amendment to strike down reparations for African-Americans is strikingly in opposite to its purpose, language, and intent. What they argue is you don't have to evoke race. The legal cause of action is common injury. Ooh. So then the question becomes, where did the common injury occur? It occurred in the United States. So they said, no, no, no. Oh, so these people were born, wait. So they kidnapped them from Nevada and took them to, no. They were taken from Africa. Oh, yeah. And there is over a century of black people meeting, trying to do two things. Number one, come up with a common idea of blackness that isn't just demographic that may indeed originate with the common injury, which means it's about whiteness, not blackness. And then we then have to work out whether or not that's enough to spark creating something, as Ngugi Watiango would say, torn and new. That means our common collective notion of self-determination doesn't predate the common injury, but because of the common injury, can we come up with a concept that is adaptive to the modern world? Or as this young sister, oh, where did I do her book? Here she is. Adam gets at you. I've showed y'all this book before. World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination. Very interesting text. Because what she's arguing is after the 1940s, after World War II, you have these former colonies who are now trying to imagine what a world would look like where the nation state isn't at the center of the organizational logic. Or if it is, at least temporarily, we can overflow the boundaries of that and come up with a common humanity, perhaps even beginning with ourselves. So while you Negroes is running around trying to find three pieces of uh, paper, pay for a damn DNA test so you can get 50 cents that ain't even been put into any damn legislation yet. Other people are saying, why are you accepting that mother may I approach? Why are you playing by rules that were set up for you never to win? A cop shoots you in the face. They don't care whether you're from Guinea or Georgia. They don't care for you from Ghana or South LA. They don't care whether you're from Minneapolis and you see they let Brother Locks killers go again. Amir locked the hunters and a black dude did that because he played by the rules. Keith Ellison doing the best he can. But in that framework, he's saying we can't convict these cops. Yeah, because the rules are set up for them to hunt their paddle rollers. It's their job to kill you. The only way they don't they don't get the only way they get punished for killing you is when they do the shit that's so egregious. What you mean, like kicking in somebody's door? No, they did that to Amir Lot. Well, you mean like going in the middle of the night and blowing them? No, they did that to, Bri to Breonna Taylor. Oh, you mean like leaning on somebody's neck for damn near 10 minutes and we all got cell phones of it and uploaded it before they could get the cameras with? Yeah, that might work. We'll hold our breath. We'll hold our breath. Okay, well, what about this white girl? Is it, well, yeah, no, nah, but the judge gonna let her go. The white judge? No, nah, she was Asian. What, wait, what the hell's happening here? You understand? All of this is 
socially constructed fantasy and it's only going to change when you combine what's happening in the rooms we started talking with with the work outside the rooms. You don't isolate yourself, ADOS and FBA. You expand your vision. And this is why common harm can be used as a rationale within the context of that flawed 18th century document, evading race, at least for the time being, because you shouldn't have to evade it because they made up strict scrutiny too. And compelling state interest. Judges, not the Constitution, because if you go by the strict language of the Civil War amendments, none of this should be an issue. Lewis Powell and them boys effed that up. In the 70s, that white supremacist, yeah, go read the Powell Amendment. You want to know about Lewis F. Powell and his junior protégés, including Sandra Day O'Connor, who still walks the earth, if I'm not mistaken, who then, in the wake of the Michigan cases, Gruder and them, said, Gruder and, 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 and Gwadiger says, you know, Maybe we need affirmative action for another 25 years. Well, guess what? They didn't even make it 25 years. He already cut the whole head off of that. And Kataji, Justice Rod Jackson, please reconsider recusing. I know that's a fantasy, but wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? Anyway, so the question then, finally, that led us to the social structure category, and we'll end with this. The question that led to the social structure category is this. Wait, let me pause. Let me pause. Come on back in, bro. Yeah. You about to say something. No, and I was just going to ask you a question. Because um, last week when you were talking about reparations, you brought up uh, the Mormons. Yes. And, and somebody in Nubia wanted to know, what, why do they have the records? Why do they have the best records? Ooh, good question. So that's all. I just wanted Good to question. Thank you. Thank you. Because I didn't open the app. Uh, simple. It's very simple. The Mormons self-determination. They are self-determining. In fact, I was just rereading there's a couple of books on black people in the Mormon church. Oh, I'll never be able to find them now. Anyway, <laughs> the point is that, it, you know, Mormon theology, and I'm no man, I've, I've read parts of the Book of Mormon. If I look over here, I might have to be, I usually keep all those books in one place, Bibles and Qurans and other sacred texts. I'm looking to see if I see the Book of Mormon. I think it might be in the other room. Anyway, Mormon theology says, you know, everybody gets their paradise you get a lot of real estate in Mormon theology, whole planets, <laughs> right? I mean, look, I mean, I can't look. We in the Easter season, y'all. And you know, if y'all reading, following world affairs, you know, in Israel, the one lady who was the one who made the coalition work in Israel to kept Bibi Netanyahu out of power, she done resigned the coalition and they courting her on the other side. That whole thing getting ready to flip. But the only reason I bring it up in this context is that you know, we're in we're in the season of Easter, Easter and Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak. Exactly. Ramadan Mubarak. Ramadan Mubarak. No question. No question. Easter, Ramadan, and Passover conversion right now. This is the season in Israel. So Mattis. Mattis and and the right wing is poised to recoup. You may see that damn criminal Netanyahu come back to power. I'm saying it's real tender right now. But so I'm just saying, you know, the idea of getting whole planets, I'm saying, well, this ain't just a season where uh, the police killed the bull with their informant snarked on him and then you know he went to Gethsemane and prayed then they came crucified him the court let the killer go and then Jim and he was up there with the two people he told the one boy you come with me in paradise or you don't believe me you're just gonna be dead and then they went and buried him in a borrowed tomb and then he got up wait he got up right yeah he got up right that's what Rita Franklin say she he got up you know got up right wait no did he get up I, well the lady came and said she saw somebody that didn't look like him with her eyes, but she knew it was him. Well, you didn't see him? 
Well, no, I, I didn't see. So anyway, so we talk about Mormons saying you get a whole planet. I'm like, okay, how you distinguishing that from the story you tell? It's all <laughs> stories. Oh my God, it's all metaphor. Anyway, I'm not gonna get into that because I don't want nobody, you know, tripping. I'm just saying there's knowledge by faith, knowledge by opinion, knowledge by reason. That's what Theophilo Bingham used to tell us all the time. Don't be confusing them categories unless you just want to lose your mind. <laughs> if it's faith, somebody believe that, just let them believe it. And what's what the Mormons believe? But in pursuit of that belief, they say you got to be able to prove your descent from God, which means we want to know your bloodlines. That is the short answer to why their obsession with genealogy led to their creation of a database. And at the heart of their even their, um, what do you call it when you go out and try to proselytize and convert people? Missionary work. At the heart of their missionary work is genealogy. I have been to genealogy centers in the Church of Latter-day Saints. I mean, one time we were in uh, Manhattan. I said, we, oh, we went past the Mormon temple. I said, no, let's not go back. Let's go in. Went down there and started researching my family history right there because part of the mission and, and the elders that helped me, and by elders, I don't mean elders in the Church of Latter-day Saints. I mean old people, an old white couple from Utah who had moved to New York for a two-year rotation in their missionary work. And their job was to work in the genealogy center because of course the center of it is in Salt Lake City. So I'm sitting there watching them. I'm giving them names. They looking, they looking through all the records, social security, birth, death records, marriage certificates. I'm looking at Alabama stuff. I'm looking at North Carolina stuff. Whoa, what the hell? And so, you know, me, common humanity. I listen to anybody. Everybody. So I'm like, so walk me through this. How long have you been doing this? Well, we've been doing this now about 40 years. Okay, so how did y'all? And now about to answer the question straight from them through me to you. <laughs> Why did y'all start? That's when they walked me through the theology. And based on it, it this is what the, the 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 man told me, the older the older man. He said, We show up anywhere in the world. We walk in your little parish, you got local birth records, we make this deal with you. Let us scan your records. We'll give you access to the digital database that we have with everybody else's records and yours in there too. And that's how they make the deal. That's how they had the best records. They go all over the world. No place is too small because <laughs> it's tied to their way of knowing their theology. And that's the answer. Oh, oh, by the way, they also then license the capitalists to access the database and charge you for it. So if you're doing Ancestry.com, no, you're doing the Church of Latter-day Saints. That's Ooh. the pass through. <laughs> Do you understand? The only way you get access to, I mean, they done made this thing. Hey, they ain't stupid. We believe in God and money. Pay us. And we can, it's, very, it's very simple. You, and, and as you're talking, and I'm, as you're talking, I am, I'm thinking about this, the foresight vision system What's our thing, Dr. Carl? What is our thing? That's what we're working on, Prof. Like I said, it's not demographics. You can't do it by skin color. It's not the common harm, even though common harm could be used as a basis for some form of wealth transfer, resource transfer, which we could call reparations or whatever context, because reparations also presumes it takes the form of where you are. In these Western-style states, the one uh, that Professor Gatacho is writing about us trying to think differently about, it's going to be tied to the frameworks we find ourselves in. So it's going to look different. If you're trying to make up a whole new concept of the state, then 
you're going to know whether you're getting close to being a little bit successful, but how the white people move against you. Thomas Sankara's killers, Burkina Faso, his friend, some people say his best friend, Blas Compare, who became the guy who ran Burkina Faso for decades until they drove him out in 2014. If you go to Burkina Faso and mention October the 15th, 1987, everyone drops their heads in reference. That was the day Compare and his comrades murdered his friend, his friend, Thomas Sankara. Sankara had wrote his own, his own books of his speeches, but here are a couple of recent books on him. Thomas Sankara, Revolutionary in Cold War Africa. Uh, here's a certain amount of madness, the life, politics, and legacies of Thomas Sankara. 33 years old when he got killed. The point I'm raising is that, and as I, as I answer this question of what's our thing, our thing's going to look different on who we think we are and what we think we can do. So if you're in a settler state, you think you got to negotiate with these people. And even the settler states won't be the same. So I, I think I mentioned this in, in Office Hours Monday night. If not, maybe it was an article that came out after that. Uh, some people may have seen, in fact, uh, the person who, it was in Sunday's paper. You know why? Because I was reading it and Angie Porter tweeted about it. In Brazil, affirmative action is written into the federal law. So they got jobs in Brazil, private companies, the government, they put out and they say only black people can apply to this. Only black and indigenous people can apply to this. Only indigenous people can apply to this. Well, they post the jobs on LinkedIn, which of course is a transnational corporation headquartered in California. This is what happened recently. They posted some jobs in Brazil, black only, black indigenous only. LinkedIn headquartered in California. Prop 209. Listen very carefully, American descendants of slavery, foundational black Americans, B1, whatever acronym y'all got that thinks it's going to be a mother may I that will lead to some check from these people who don't respect their own systems. But listen very carefully. LinkedIn headquartered in California said, you got to take those postings off our platform. The private companies in Brazil is like, government's like, why? They said, because in the United States of America, if you use race, this is a category you cannot know. You can't do that. Race cannot be used. So the companies in Brazil was like, no problem. F LinkedIn. Guess who else started saying that? Coca-Cola. All these international companies pushed back against the racist <laughs> whiteness. <laughs> Strict scrutiny. Communist compelling state interest. Narrowly tailored. <laughs> we in Brazil. You know. The majority of people in Brazil are descendants of enslaved people, are black. Now, the we can't even hold that back in the census. We can't even lie no more about it in the census, which means you know it's even more. <laughs> but even by our numbers, it's majority black. We can't do this. They're going to tear this whole damn country up anyway, Balazar, you damn racist. But in the meantime, we're trying to make some consent. Guess what? LinkedIn, you got, what did LinkedIn do? They held the line because in the United States, you can't use race. No international pressure and the money people linkedin said we're changing our rules now any company post on linkedin just got to follow the rules of whatever country you in i want y'all understand some ados people you clinging to your master's pants leg like tim scott sitting there listening to that victrola and that rca logo your master's voice not gonna dictate the terms of your liberation you have to think outside that box. So in Tenkara's case, when they took over and changed the name of that country from Upper Volta, French colony, to Burkina Faso, the land of upright people, the land of upright men. He's saying you can't have liberation of our people without the liberation of women. Raising literacy, moving toward the poor. Jacques Chirac and them come down. He's saluting and stuff. And he's saying, we don't want nothing from y'all. We got everything we need in Africa. 
and these fake ass lines, we're gonna get rid of them too. But the first step is we're gonna grow everything we need here. We're gonna Chirac got on the phone with the DC, got on the phone with London. This guy gotta go. Who can we buy in this entourage? And Compare killed him. And they just convicted Compare of the murder of Thomas Sankar with others this week. Compare going to jail. Wait, he's not going to jail. Well, where is he? France? He didn't even have to go to France. He in Cote d'Ivoire, which don't have no extradition treaty with uh, Burkina Faso because, remember, we talked about that months ago when uh, the latest book writing about all this came out. These white formations, it only looks like the U.S. It only looks like England. It only looks like France. They're all separate countries until they get a common enemy like Putin is right now, and they all move together. Well, the Africans were saying, until we can get rid of these lines, let's come together. But they always got a few or three or five or 10 or 50 or 100 or a million Negroes who think individually, and that's why Compare can be convicted of the murder of his friend and not worry about because he's sitting in a villa in Cote d'Ivoire, because Cote d'Ivoire ain't on the pain page yet. This is the pan-Africanism. But I know it just sounds good. You pan-Africanist versus ADOS. It ain't no pan-Africanist. Shut the hell up. Just be quiet. But the we, looking at Katanji, looking at Justice Brown Jackson, looking at some black people in that, in, in that, in that, in that, uh, lawn, on that lawn in D.C. At, at the White House, the question I raised, what are black people? What's our thing? Our thing requires us first beginning to think about what our means. Mm. And what our means, which is why I'm so excited. Those of you who are not yet in Nubia, just know that beginning the day after tomorrow, beginning Monday, we are going to engage in some work that I've been down this path before with different groups. When Barracoon first came out, a book that was in the archives at Howard University for decades in Elaine Locke's papers, Zorna Hurston and Lane Locke, course friends, correspondence. There was a there was a copy of it there. Deborah Plant, a sister who is an independent scholar, went to Southern undergrad, has a master's degree in French from Atlanta University, let her go out a PhD, I think University of Nebraska. We invited her to campus the second time I taught Barracoon. Um, when it first came out, and of course, you know, we can say some more about it. We're gonna talk a lot more about it Monday. There it is, right there. There's Kasula Lewis, our brother. On that ship, the Clotilda, the last ship that was taken out of Africa and brought to the United States. And I invited uh, the publisher of this. Uh, I, was, I wasn't going to say that. I thought you was going to surprise. Oh, okay. Then <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say less. No, 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 no. Because remember, I teased it last Monday when you said that. I got so excited. And I'm like, but if y'all ain't in Nubia, please understand. And if you are, you just heard. I can't wait. So now I know everybody ain't gonna make. We got a thousand here now on the Nubia side. We have more net every Monday night, and I'm just bringing to bringing to this as we kind of come in for a landing today. The question of what's our thing requires an hour. So all those years in Philly when we were doing Philadelphia Freedom School, and at the same time working on this Africana Studies framework for the mandatory African American History high school class in the Philadelphia Public Schools high schools. I spent more hours than I can count with all of, of our comrades who were teachers in Philadelphia Freedom Schools workshopping these ideas with teenagers. Because if you can't translate it, another thing, Sonia Sotomayor's dissents are written in a style that people who didn't go to law school can read. She's very deliberate about that. I encourage y'all to go look at her dissents. Oh, man, it's beautiful. I mean, they, and I understand the allure of the law. 
the allure of it for, for Paul Robeson, the allure of it for Paulie Murray, the allure of it for Malcolm X as a boy, the allure for w William Patterson, who was the lawyer, friend of Paul and S.E. Robeson, who filed this petition in 1951. We charge genocide, the historic position to the United Nations for relief from a crime of the United States government against the Negro people, ADOS people. I understand the allure. It's the same thing that got me. Sent me to law school out of a HBCU where we understood that black universities were going to carry the burden of desegregation, the burden of diversity, because they didn't give a damn about us except what do we want from these communities that we can use to enhance these white schools and we're going to wipe yours out in the meantime. That's what sent a whole generation of black students, including myself, to law school to get into court. Then you get into court and realize it comes down to your honor, please. Okay, I'm going to spend the rest of my life continuing to read, continuing to work, but I'm going to classroom because we have to understand where we are differently. I'm sent out to say that, you know, as you ask this question of, you know, um, uh, what's our thing? When we understand that we have to begin by constructing a we that is not based on demographics alone, maybe even not at all, that is not based on the group trauma or the harm, even though we can use the harm as a weapon within these frameworks, understand that all the frame in the framework, there are differences between the settler colonies. We just saw it with Brazil and the United States that we can base it on not a perpetual tragedy because see, that's the other thing, this amorphous blackness that somehow is always rooted in surviving trauma, which I think is the root of black joy, black resistance as joy. See, this trauma, and don't be pulling all the African culture in there in Africa, because you, you're linking it to trauma and you see it just bubbling up and out of the art. The trauma just, just speaking, just speaking, except now it has, all, has colorful uh, colors and it's got African language and it's got names, it's got Ibanez, it's got music. It's so beautiful and so traumatic. And you saying that that blend is what it means to be black. Blackness over, <laughs> stop it. Could you please understand institution building? But the point I'm trying to make is this, the we we can build requires us understanding how we got to this place. So Monday night, taking Kasula, Taking the work Deborah Plant did as editor, painstaking independent scholar, putting this text together, checking the text against other versions of it, because part of what Zora Neale Hurston was sent south to collect in terms of these stories, different types of stories, and we'll talk about her whole oeuvre, uh, uh, on, on my, her whole range of stuff on Monday, but part of what she's doing is based on the fact that she's in a governance category. She knows home trends. She got ways of knowing. She knows how to sit with Kasula. She knows how to understand there are levels to this that begin at the village. Her village that she was born and raised in, in some ways, culturally not very different than the village Kasula Lewis was raised in. And his wife and the people who came over on the Cotilda who were forced into this settler enterprise coming into Mobile Bay. Her ways of knowing, uh, she recognizes some of the resonances in the stories that Kasula tells her that he learned growing up in Africa that are included in the appendix in the book. The games they played that are included in the appendix of the book. The intergenerational transmission, she knows how to sit with him and not just come in here with a tape recorder asking all kind of damn questions. No, you got to come and help me uh, pick through these beans. Today, I'm going to sweep over here. You got to get that broom. 
Okay, today I ain't even asking no question. Even if she's writing back to Franz Boaz, we're gonna look at her letters. I just found my thank God it wasn't in uh in storage. Carla Kaplan's uh anthology of letters. There are letters she's sending the receipts back to Woodson. She's writing to Boaz so I could get a used car because walking out there just takes too long. All this stuff, she's collecting these things. Movement and memory, it's unbroken. There's an unbroken genealogy. Naming is in there, intergenerosity, and that social structure. When we say what's our thing. We got to come up with the hour. We can trace back now to the harming, mm. the eternal conversations that were going on in Africa, the way people descended on other people because they were forced to do it. We're going to surround Barracoon with information from a variety of sources. So as we go page by page through there, this very compelling narrative, this very compelling narrative that Kasula shares with her. We're going to look at the Civil War. We're going to look at Reconstruction. We're going to look at the afterlives of enslavement, including the so-called criminal justice system, which is really a black punishment system. We're going to look at all those things. We're even going to bring it up to right now. There's a sister uh, retired from Hampton University, Natalie Robeson, because the second time we read Barracoon uh, as a collective, we did it for freshman seminar at Howard. I got word the other day they were saying they had a meeting and People saying, you know, so the freshman seminar at Howard, maybe uh, too Afrocentric. That's come from people at Howard. Hey, I'm surprised y'all let us get away with it for 10 years. And Googie Watiango came. Wale Shoyenka came. Ta-Nehisi, when he wrote his book, he came. He went to Howard. Uh, I'm surprised y'all letting us get away with this because I understand the Negro College. I went to one and I work at one. Understand the mother may I principle in blackness. The range of blackness. Understand when Kwame Ture says at Howard University, you have everything in the black world and it's opposite. That's not just Howard. That's all the HBCUs. As long as we exist as Du Bois critiqued HBCUs when he was talking to them as a figment of white imagination, as long as we don't define what the we means, when we say what's our thing, our thing is to get maybe two clerks to get on the Supreme Court one day. That's not our thing. That's your thing as an individual. And he's going to turn around and say, get up on my level. You understand that that hierarchy you're talking about is going to collapse? So even... In some in some ways, the HBCU is where blackness is challenged the most. Mm -hmm. This is what some people call the politics of respectability. I'm not even gonna get into that. But we and when we start reeling with Barracoon, two questions came up. Now, and with this, Kasula, Deborah Plant writes this in Barracoon. She says the disconnection that those Africans experienced from being pulled away was a source of constant distress. N not. Okay, we're here now. And then it went away over the years. No, it's epigenetic. It's passed on. That constant distress this is what some people said. The Hartman and them, you know, talk about the afterlives of enslavement. You start talking about reparations. It doesn't begin here. It begins with the concept of blackness, which came from the concept of whiteness. And if you can mount a legal action against that, you can't make that a legal action. Go talk to people at LinkedIn. Do you understand? that you are only limited by your imagination and your capacity to build a weed that overflows these fake ass lines because that's what they do. They form like Voltron when it comes to come against you to take out Sankara, to kill some more Michelle. Understand how they understood it better in the 80s and 90s in hip hop. When you see groups like, um, oh, what's my crew? Um, Stetsasonic, A-F-R-I-C-A, Angola, Soweto, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Zambia, Mozambique, and Botswana. So let us speak about the motherland. He said, I got a report and I cried a whole week that Samora Michelle from Mozambique was killed in a crash that couldn't be explained. I wanted to rush your brother refrain. Kenneth Kaunda's in Zambia. I'm in America. These are black Americans in hip hop 
understanding better than these retrograde Negroes in 2022. Somehow think you can get on your master's pants leg and they'll give you the change in your pocket if you say the right mother may I. And you ain't going to the Church of Latter-day Saints. You're going to pay that premium price from Ancestry.com. And guess what? When you go to them with the bill, they're going to be like, what you talking about? Meanwhile, the white people going to say, well, I've already done my history and I have one enslaved ancestor. And so give me the management capability. And because I run the bank, we'll be the ones in charge. of." <laughs> yeah, you would go ask Native Americans about that strategy. Anyway, so the whole notion then in reparations, that's the first thing, is that the afterlife is there. And the final thing is, looking at that White House scene, and thinking about this over and over again, hearing this news, and they saying maybe it's you know too Afrocentric, bruh. Let's quote the Eagles. Cause I'm already gone. What do you think jailbreaking means? In order to self-determine, we don't leave any place we're in. It's all strategic, but you gotta have a place you can be. And if you have a place you can be, it will continue to transform all those other places. Freedom schools, we read Barracoon. Those teenagers, oh my God, making direct connections between how they were raised at home and what Kasula is telling Zora, what this elder is telling this junior. We're going to make those connections because now, and then we did it at Howard with like a thousand students and Deborah Plant came and Natalie Roberson from uh, Hampton came who wrote a whole book on the Clotilda. She traced it all the way back to Africa. She's still around. We had to get her, but in the time we read Barracoon. You know, she went back to the continent, making those connections. She spent time in Africatown, which is in Mobile, Alabama, the home of Cleon Jones, who wrote about growing up there, the home of uh, Satchel Paige, who talks about this, you know, Henry Aaron, the hammer, Mobile, Alabama, Mobile Bay. So all of that, when we read it, students coming up with this coming up. Is that too Afrocentric? Yeah, so black is scared to shut up you, didn't he? Because you're trying to figure out if that's the right suit or the right skirt that can get you in the room. And there's nothing that can get you in the room that's going to allow you to do anything in there that's going to help us if you are leaving your humanity at the doorstep. No problem. You do what you do. Because at the end of the day, COVID, jail broke all that. People complaining about the money they paying. If I'm doing this, why can't I just lower this tuition? Guess what? We're already gone and now reinforcing the independent space. And if you're not in it yet, you better rush. You better rush into this because when we start this conversation, Monday, we have in the, the setting and then the following week, we get into the book. So when we do that, as I say, I'm watching this and I'm thinking perhaps the harm is irreparable. So what's our thing? Finally, I don't know. But as James Brown answered, uh, Brother Bobby, he said, I don't know. But whatsoever it is, it's got to be funky. <laughs> In other words, our thing will emerge as we understand what has happened before. And if the harm is irreparable, it's going to be something torn and it's going to be something new. Reparations is really an exercise in world making. Absolutely. We ask ourselves, why do you have an expectation of these people? Why do you think they have an obligation? The answer to that is because you think that humanity should have a different standard than whiteness. That, that is the, re the real reasonableness standard in the law should be humanity, not whiteness. If a cop kill a human being, those people shouldn't get reparations. You think Amadou Diallo said, I'm from Africa, don't shoot me? No, the reasonable standard is you harm somebody. You can't think outside that box. The harm may be irreparable, but that doesn't mean that we can't build something that isn't harm-based. And we're going to start that process on Monday. And that's because of Nubia, y'all.
if those of you not in there, everybody who's in here right now, Nubians, y'all understand that Barracoon came from a conversation we had two weeks ago where the continental Africans came in who were in London. Then the sister African came in from the U.S. and says, I don't know how I feel about that. Not attacking them, just saying, but you know, but we're here. And and in and, and, and process of that conversation we had, what emerged was we need to talk about this. And then you got a sister with two whole African names sitting on the Supreme Court who married a white man and nobody expecting her to show up in a dashiki. And you ask yourself, well, is this good? Is this bad? <sighs> Let's sit. <laughs> Let's sit and talk. That's where we talk. That's what we do. Oh, man. I, always full. Always full when I leave here. Um, thank you. You're you're gonna be at a conference uh, as the first vice president of something today. Oh my goodness! Yes, uh, thank you, thank you. you. Gotta, you uh, in a minute, in fact, I got a poor libation. Uh, <laughs> while pre while people who are not uh, who were not in newbie, y'all watching this, uh, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, the president for that in organization is Mario Beatty, who's teaching metonature in Nubia, as y'all know. Uh, our conference started last night. It goes through the whole weekend. If you go to www.ascac.org, ascac.org. Everybody can register. Y'all can y'all can come. You know, it's free. Y'all can make we, we, we putting a building together. So y'all will get some money fine, but you can come. Uh, scholars from all over the world, activists, workers from all over the world. Shake out the joke. His partner who helped start the political party joke was in. He's presenting um, tomorrow. Um, we got students as young as four or five years old last night. The Flag family, that's, that's our heart. We love them. The babies, the grandbabies, the great grandbabies, they did the national anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing last night from LA. Shout out to South LA, the president of the Western Region, Makeda Kumasi. Um, all of them, the East, we have the international region, got brothers from Trinidad and sisters from Trinidad and London. Uh, Aman Sab uh, 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 brother Saba, Aman Saba, who is the publisher of Karnak House Press out of London, but he's from Trinidad, he's back in Trinidad. The virtual reality has jailbroken this. This is the future. So, yeah, thank you for say, saying that, Professor Hunter. I'm getting ready to go get ready now to pour libation. Today is my day. And then we're going to talk about this new study guide we've created. So, all right, I'm going to let you go. We, we posted the link in Nubia. So, y'all yes! join. Yes, 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 yes. Come on, Nubians. Love you. See you on Monday with Barracoon and see y'all on Tuesday with the Oh, oh wait, wait, one more thing. I'm sorry. You gave me a, 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 a order and I'm covering up the address. Yeah, please do. Oh, what the are we airmail? What came in the mail, Dr. Cross? I had to. Oh, I've been waiting on this for a couple of years. For ye for a couple of years, uh the Cuban Jamaican uh philosopher Sylvia Winter. There's been an anthology of her work. She's still around. This book Ooh, is uh that book is, is, is almost as thick as the book that's right over your shoulder, that Nubian book. Oh, yeah, Nubia. Yeah, this is uh, William Adams' book, Nubia Court of the Africa. Right. This is called We Must Learn to Sit Down Together and Talk About a Little Culture. Decolonizing Essays, 1967 to 1984. Sylvia Winter, uh, Demetrius Udell edited this. It's her work from this period to this period. Uh, a brilliant sister. She's the one, no humans involved. This is the sister right here, Sylvia Winter, taking that essay. And the other one I should uh, mention, I hope I had it somewhere because this one came and I could not. Oh, man. Oh, I can't see it. I don't know if I can. Uh, yeah, there's a new biography of Walter Rodney that came out, and it. Mm -mm -mm. Oh, doggone it! See, I know, and I gotta, 
I gotta go in a minute. And Wait, I you gotta go. You gotta go. Just bring it. Bring it. Bring it to. Bring it to office hours on Monday. We'll bring, we'll bring it to office hours. I, oh, I should show this one for Oz though. Oz probably already got this. This is uh, this lady right here, Carolyn Elkins. She's at uh Harvard in African and African American Studies, and founded the Center for African Studies. But the reason I got it is it's called Oz probably got this Legacy of Violence: A History of the British Empire. Carolyn Elkins. She won the Pulitzer for earlier work. This one is about nine hundred pages. She's tracking down all of Great Britain's crimes. Shout out to the Jamaicans for making sure that that couple, that everybody, see people in the United States worried about the baby and whatever that baby name is. The Jamaicans was like, deuces, get out of here. Oh, and Mia Moore Motley, you saw her latest move. Oh, I love she, her. <laughs> Mia Moore Motley said, you shouldn't need a visa to come to Barbados, black people. Now I want you ADOS Negroes to think about that while you looking for your visa. <laughs> I'm going to be going to Barbados. Come, we going to Barbados. <laughs> yes, Jamaica, Barbados, we hitting all of the... All come of the- on, Beach Boys. <laughs> Except this ain't this ain't Kokomo, Bermuda, Bahama. Come yeah. on, Brittany. We going. <laughs> going. Cargo, yeah, yeah, we're claiming our time. Gives That's a whole our- new meaning to... Uh, to uh to Kokomo. No, we Absolutely. black people. That's we can make that a Pan-African song. <laughs> Facts. Uh Nubians love you. Uh love everyone you. else, see you in these narrative Nubian streets. And if you want to do a deep dive on Paul Robeson through Eslanda, yes, uh, go to narrative in the you should know section. Dr. Carr breaks it all down, all oh. of the goodness and happy birthday. Happy birthday, Paul Robeson. We well, we did a whole thing on a yes. year ago. Yes, you did them both, and like you said, we do it. We did Essie and Paul. That's right. So y'all got to come over there for that. Yes. Happy birthday. Right. <laughs> Love and you. Enjoy your con- uh, con- conference. Love you too. Some of us are gonna join you. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Come on. I right. Love you. See y'all. <laughs>